Absolutely. Okay, I'm ready. Brent, you know, this is all you. All right, right on. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the Hot Isle. My name is Brent Piotti, and with me as always, I have the wonderful, attractive, and uh, charming Mr. Brian Carpenter. Brian, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, but I thought you were going to say our guest name there. So No, no, not yet. We're, we're working towards that, right? We do have a goal of the show every single time. This one is no different. So the goal of this show today is to address the complexities of moving containers into production and help you understand more about this production cliff. So production cliff was, I think, was invented by our guest, and uh, hopefully we'll find out if that's actually the case. With us this morning, we have Michael Ducey, a.k.a. the Goat Whisperer from Chef. Michael, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, just to correct something you said, so I'm not actually the one that invented that. My coworker actually drew that on a whiteboard, and I took a picture of uh, the production cliff and tweeted it, and now it's just been credited to me. So I got to make sure that Julian Dunn gets his uh, his due there. Maybe we Fantastic. should have Julian on. We've, first mistake, we didn't call the inventor. Um, <laughs> but you know, that's I appreciate you giving him cred. And as soon as Brent said that, I said, "Wow, that's a reach." We'll find out, and uh, that's awesome. But either way, the two of you. By you taking, you know, and putting it out there and letting everybody do it, you have no idea how many slides that's shown up on in presentations. And uh, it's, it is awesome. It's an awesome story. So we're going to get into it and uh, we'll give Julian credit as it's due. And then we'll talk about what it's all about, right? Absolutely. So, Michael, first of all, tell us what you do over at Chef. And then also, you know, look, you're a fellow podcaster as well. This whole goat whisper thing, the goat can, all, all that. I want to I learn more about that and where it is. Sure. So what I do at Chef is uh, I've worked at Chef for four years and I've held a variety of different roles, which is actually one of the reasons why I like Chef is that it's given me the opportunity to kind of move around and experience lots of different aspects of the software business. My current role is a mix of product marketing and platform advocacy. So my job is to help people understand uh, one of our open source projects called Habitat uh, and how Habitat can solve their problems. Uh, And then I also do a lot of the uh, building the product marketing materials around Habitat right now as well. Okay. So you've had, you said, various different uh, roles within within Chef. It looks like you've been there called about five years, um, developing enterprise architecture. Kind of t- tell us about your, your story there. And you, you have actually a, uh, a past, right, outside of that, being a cloud, cloud architect and doing some other things too. So what kind of got you to Chef? Yeah, um, so I started off in operations. I worked at Orbitz, um, was kind of my first big job. I had a job before that uh, as a Linux engineer in a small office. But Orbitz really kind of taught me like how to run systems at scale, right? And how to run uh, high traffic websites and all of those s- sorts of problems that you start to get into. Uh, I did a little bit of dabbling in uh, performance and capacity planning, uh, which I found pretty interesting because you get to apply mass into uh, the work that you do. Uh, so I was actually able to use my degrees. And then uh, I got into sales, believe it or not. So uh, for about eight years, I've worked in pre-sales, uh, uh, which is kind of shocking to some people because uh, probably one of the more technical pre-sales people uh, and can hold my own very well in a technical conversation, uh, even though I do have the sales moniker uh, and I'm compensated like a salesperson at times. 
Uh, and then at Chef, they gave me the opportunity to move into business development and understand how you build partnerships with other software companies and how you build partnerships with things like uh, global systems integrators and things like that. Uh, they've given me a, a great opportunity to travel the world over the last four years that I've been there uh, as well. And so getting really to see how technology, there's um, um, levels of maturity depending upon where you go in the world. And I'm from the Midwest, so uh, we're in flyover country, and I've always lived in the Midwest. And so when you go to the West Coast or the East Coast, you can see that where uh, technology adoption patterns are completely different, uh, even within the United States. And then if you take that and apply it throughout the world, uh, it is definitely different. That's awesome. And uh, as, as somebody who gets to uh, talk to partners in, uh, in the strategic integrators right now, I I, I respect the job that you've done for Chef as a result, right? So uh, lots of people talking about it lots of ways. Well, one of the interesting questions I had uh, is, is always about education of these people. So you know, it looks like you focused early on on computer science, also got an MBA later on, so focusing on business, right? And kind of combining those worlds is what you're doing now. What got you into wanting to focus on computer science? Well, uh, so I started in computer science and um, – Really, growing up, I did a lot of um, kind of like learning about construction trades and stuff like that. So my dad was an electrician. My uh, grandpa was a carpenter. And so the trades were something that was I was exposed to early on. I had a workbench when I was five years old uh, in our kitchen, and I'm building like birdhouses and boxes and stuff like that. Um, and we got our first computer right around that same time as well. And what I found really interesting is that you had this programming language that you could take and apply to the computer and make the computer do things. Just like I could take a saw and some wood and some nails and a hammer and I could crack that wood into something. I could do that same thing uh, on the digital uh, level as well with a computer. And that's really kind of what got me interested in it. Um, and then at some point in my career, and I think it was when I was working at Orbitz, what I found is that we had business people that would always come into the operations center when the site was down or a hotel channel wasn't performing correctly. A hotel channel was like you get hotel rates from multiple different vendors and then you display them on the site. And so sometimes one of those vendors go down for various reasons. And um, trying to explain that technical problem and the technical challenges to that business person and kind of be that translation layer uh, was a bit of a challenge at times. So I went and got my MBA mainly because I wanted to understand the challenges that the business people were going through in trying to use technology to solve their problems. And going back to kind of my upbringing, uh, how you craft that technology to solve that business problem. Yeah, and you know, you remind me of something. It's actually kind of how Brent and I got started. So you know, we we sat around looking at like trying to teach people about looking at how you kind of go to solve business problems, especially these new types of business problems. And so let's rewind uh, on that on that podcast. You know, me, you know, Brent mentioned the whole goat thing, right? And so, um, first of all, is the goat thing helping at all with this new goat yoga thing? Like, is that you know, <laughs> is being a goat whisperer helping with the new goat yoga thing at all? Well, I don't do goat yoga enough. Um, I'm a runner and uh, I don't stretch. And so I'm always constantly having problems with tight muscles and sore backs. And I think if I did more goat yoga, I know my wife would definitely want me to do more goat yoga to help with those problems. I'm going to admit, I don't know what the hell goat yoga is. You don't know what goat yoga is? No. Okay. So 
I'm embarrassed. To, I learned it not that long ago. Um, and so, first of all, let's visibly describe. I mean, obviously, people get down on the ground and they create different shapes and stretch their bodies and do the normal yoga thing, which I barely know yoga at all. Okay. Um, but then the tendency of a baby goat, which uh, being from the South, we have plenty of those. First of all, baby goats, you put them in little tiny diapers and they actually like wear little onesies so that they don't make <laughs> a mess on you, which is part of this. And the, the then what happens is they, they have a, just a natural tendency to want to automatically climb to the highest spot possible. So as you're down in your whatever pose, I'm, I'm embarrassed to even say like one of them, like a downward dog or something. But when you get down on your knees and all, your back is up, they will jump on your back. And they, they start to do things like knead on your back and in their little, you know, hoofs and things like that. And I've never done yoga, but I assure you, I will do goat yoga and I will do it in 2017. I invite you and <laughs> I invite you and Michael and all of our listeners to come out to Texas. We will rent a room and we will goat yoga it up. And, and by the way, you talk about a short career. The only shorter career than mine is a baby goat yoga goat because they eventually grow up into annoying goats that nobody wants in the yoga room. Um, so we have digressed. We were talking about the goat whisperer and we got into goat yoga. Let's go back to the goat whisperer. Um, you know, like the, the podcast you set out to help people. Uh, it's a fantastic podcast. I think Brent was kind of asking where it stands today. So why don't we talk about you instead of baby goats? Yeah, so the podcast, I haven't done one in about a year. And the reason why, well, there are a couple things that went on. So my co-host changed jobs and he's much busier and had to move his family across the country. So, you know, personal issues. But when we set out to do the podcast, there was this kind of mythology of enterprise DevOps is different than regular DevOps, right? And uh, I was kind of anti this idea of enterprise DevOps. I like to refer to it as DevOps in the enterprise and how do you take DevOps and apply it to enterprise problems versus trying to create this uh, branch of DevOps that only applies to large companies. And so what I set out to do with the podcast was to try and educate people and find people that were doing DevOps in the enterprise to kind of prove the point of, hey, look, it's the exact same things that we're talking about at DevOps days and other conferences. Um, sure, a little bit of the application is different and how you solve those problems are different. And of course, the political problems are different. But at the end of the day, it's basically the same. And so we don't have to create this stratification of DevOps branches based upon how big your company is. You can still uh, apply the learnings from DevOps and solve problems. And do you end up having conversations in today, like 2017, around this kind of idea. I've heard a couple of times this year, and you know, I thought it was kind of interesting, uh, the idea of DevOps in an ITIL world, right? Where there are still things that are going to be kind of, uh, you know, ITIL type focused and very, very waterfally and very traditional. Uh, but yet there's this whole, yeah, there's obviously a huge faction of every corporation of most size that has some also DevOps and trying to balance and actually create relationships between them. Is that still a story today? Or is that kind of, where, where are you seeing that from your perspective? It's still a story to an extent. Uh, I think what you've learned is that most of uh, the way you treat ITIL processes in a DevOps world is you treat them as a system of record and you try to automate 
uh, everything that you would have to put into an ITIL-based system or an ITSM system. And so change requests should just be automatically created, automatically approved uh, for the majority of things, and you just use it as a logging mechanism so that if something does go wrong, you can go back and look and say, okay, this is who did what, when, and where. Uh, and you kind of have that record that you can show to people later on. So I got to ask then, you know, what, what is, where did the goat whisperer come from? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so my first, uh, my first trip to Amsterdam, uh, it was just uh, joking. I went to DevOps Days Amsterdam in 2014 or 2013, I think. Uh, whichever one the first one was, it was 2013, sorry. And uh, I had to write slides for an Ignite, and the Ignite was kind of last minute. So I came up with a talk called, uh, I've got 99 problems, but DevOps ain't one. Hmm. Um, and it was all based upon somebody who had tweeted, um, you know, how do you solve the DevOps problem? Uh, and uh, I came up with this talk, and one of the problems that I had was, because uh, of course it's Amsterdam, was where did I wake up, uh, <laughs> and and whose goat is this? Because <laughs> you know it's a, it sounds to be a very Amsterdamian problem, uh, and it kind of just stuck. And the other thing that happened at DevOps Days 2013 is there were a, a lot of talk about silos as well, and so it came up with this. You know, one of the organizers were like, "We're talking about goats. We're talking about silos so much. Are we at a farming conference?" And uh, one of the organizers ended up challenging me. They found this mathematical problem called the goat in the silo. And they said, if you can do a talk on the goat in the silo, we'll invite you back to another conference that they were organizing <laughs> and give the talk, the goat in the silo. And so I created this talk called the goat in the silo, and it kind of has taken off from there. Okay. So it's a little bit like the, uh, the goat in the shell. No, uh, the, uh, wah, wah, oh my gosh. Oh, Brent. <laughs> there okay, goes the podcast. How many people I tuned out? Go we ahead. Need to edit that. No, we're not anyway, editing. Hey. We don't edit. <laughs> so uh, it, we we but I am. To, oh, sorry. Ahead. So like stepping back to the podcast. So I am actually looking at relaunching the podcast, and hopefully, I can record my first episode next week. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a different take, and what I want to try and focus on is enterprise adoption of new technology. So how are organizations getting over that production cliff that we talked about and how are they starting to implement things like containers and kubernetes and modern schedulers and stuff like that and kind of uh changing the way that they work through the technology that they're adopting yeah awesome you know i know you've had some good guests on uh, nordstrom capital one <clears throat> so you know those are clearly big enterprise shops so speaking of you know containers and, and orchestrators you were just at DockerCon 2017 uh, you know, five months ago ish. Um, what are what were some of your key takeaways? I saw you were on the cube there, but I uh, just wanted to get it out in the open for those that haven't watched it. The thing that I liked the most about what they announced was Linux Kit, and I think if you really look at what they're trying to do there, is they're trying to make it super simple to deploy um, operating systems that are container focused only. And so if you look at what goes on in the container world and what you actually need to run containers effectively, most of what's in the operating system uh, is no longer needed. Uh, there's some tools you might need for troubleshooting and stuff like that. But the uh, 
libraries and all of those other sorts of things should actually become the domain of the container. And what the base OS or the, the host OS that you need to actually run those containers are actually very, very minimal. And so they've come up with this uh, declarative format to actually go and define an operating system via a YAML file and build an ISO image that you can then go and take and deploy to your bare metal systems or to your VMs if you want to use VMs for containers. It's better to use bare metal, but we won't get into that. Um, and uh, it, 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 they are really starting to understand that like, the old school operating system may not necessarily apply to the way that you run systems at scale now in a containerized world. Interesting. Yeah. You know, there was a, a quote that you had said in the, in the new stack <clears throat> specifically around um, operating systems and containers that 75% of, of containers hold a full OS and the OS is the source of most of our problems. So can you kind of uh, elaborate on that for us? Yeah, that was actually from a talk that a gentleman by the name of Gareth Rushgrove did. Uh, Gareth oh, yeah. works for Puppet. Yeah, um, you know, the, I'm sure you can link to his Twitter profile in the show notes. Um, but he did a study of like looking at um, GitHub, and so if you go to Google uh, Google Cloud, there's something called BigQuery, and they have all GitHub data in there for all the public repositories. And you can do queries across that. I mean, you can get down to the actual files that are uh, living in a GitHub repository. And so he basically looked for all the repositories that had a Docker file in them and then looking to see what was actually in that Docker file. And um, it kind of speaks to the fact that we don't know how to package up containers correctly. Uh, we don't know how to package the application inside of that container correctly. And we're applying old paradigms to a new problem. And you see this, like the best way to see this is look at a Docker file. And usually the first line in a Docker file is from some operating system image, right? And then once you do that from operating system image, it allows you to basically go in and add in all these old paradigms that we've been using for years. Um, and, and that's why, because as an administrator, I don't know how to run a container effectively. I'm going to fall back into my default behavior, right? And that's why you end up with massively huge uh, container images that contain almost a full-blown operating system. And I've seen this in customers, uh, large banks and things like that, and they want to try and uh, uh, use containers and take advantage of container technology. But in the end, they're just uh, repeating what they did with VMs. Yeah, it's making things more complex, right? Just because just you containerize a, a legacy application does not mean that it uh, is suddenly easier. No, and in some ways it's actually more challenging because uh, you do have challenges that in running a traditional application a lot of times inside of a container. Uh, Apprenda is one company that's very big on kind of moving traditional applications into a container. And they do have some interesting studies on their site uh, about you know how much rework has to be done uh, for some applications. Uh, and this is also something that Docker's very interested in with their move to our modernized traditional applications. They call it MTA for short, about how do you just take a traditional application and package it up in a container. And while that sounds interesting, um, I would question if you're actually solving any problems and if you're not just creating more headaches for yourself. Sure, you mm -hmm. get that faster launch time um, of the application and of the container uh, than you would in a VM world. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, is this 
a PG thirteen podcast or not? It's no, not we can Brent's go crazy here. Yeah, Brent wrote okay. every week. Go ahead. <laughs> so you're packaging up shit and you're putting it in a prettier box, yeah. right? But at the end of the day, you still have shit. Yeah, <laughs> shit in, in a, a box. box. Yeah, shit. That's uh, different than um, the way SNL thinks about things in boxes. But um, you know, so. Uh, I do, I, you know, you, you mentioned Gareth Rush, Rushgrove, and since we're over here giggling, uh, he was actually on the podcast, um, you know, basically, I don't know, he actually was on for a Project Blue Shift, like, just about a year ago, uh, and so uh, another fantastic guest, so if you're listening and you're hearing that, you know, for those who might be thinking about, you know, the other side of the kind of config management world, he also has talked about a couple of those things, another smart person, so you know, let's dive in. I mean, we brought you here for a reason. We've obviously talked about, uh, you know, a lot of really cool things. Uh, I'm excited to hear about some of the things you're doing. Um, we actually were, it was suggested that they're like, you've got to have Michael on very purposefully. Um, so I'm going to be purposeful about it. Um, you're starting some new stuff going on right now. We've got some things that are just, just popping. So why don't you do it instead of me? Why don't you tell me about what's popping right now and what's going to happen here really quick? Sure. So for the last uh, about 14 months, we've been working on an open source project. And even before that, we released it 14 months ago, but this open source project called Habitat. So interesting thing about Chef is we have three open source projects that are kind of our pillars of automation. Uh, we have our one that we're known for, Chef. Um, we have another one called Inspec, which is a very cool tool that allows you to write compliance rules in a programmatic language. Uh, to go and check machines for compliance. And then uh, the last one is Habitat. And Habitat's the one we released in June of 2016. And Habitat's really focused around how do we kind of change the paradigm of how you package up applications and then go and deploy that application and then also manage the application. So it's it's um, a little bit challenging because we spread ourselves across so many different aspects of the technology lifecycle or the application lifecycle from build to deployment to management. Um, but what we released um, what, what we released this week was um, something called Habitat Builder. And so what Habitat allows you to do is you can write a, a very simple shell script. And by very simple, we have customers who are amazed how simple it is. So we have a, a customer in Japan and they commented that uh, it's so much less code to automate when they went to go and automate with Habitat to where they were able to automate an entire application with 10 lines of shell. And by shell, I mean bash. Yeah. So once you have that plan written, it creates a package for the application. And this package is similar to something like an RPM or a Debian package. Uh, but it is different because it does contain more information in it about how the application should actually be ran. It also contains all the start-stop scripts for the application, and it contains configuration files as well. And then you can take this application package, and you can run it through an exporter. And this exporter will basically take your application, all of the application dependencies, and package them up in whatever, uh, what I like to call, deployable artifact format that you want. And so deployable artifact formats are something like a container image, uh, an AMI, uh, if you're using Amazon and Azure Machine, um, what do they call it? Azure VM image. Um, so those things that you can actually then take and put it onto a infrastructure platform and then have an infrastructure orchestrator, something like Kubernetes or Mesosphere, uh, go and actually run the application. And that's awesome. And I'll take a breath in case you have questions. Yeah, I do. I do. So um, 
But if, like you said, it's been out for, I, I believe you said, what was it, 13 months? Is that what you said? How long, and so... About that. Yeah, but yet we have kind of a big announcement about it right now. And so what is, what's being announced versus what we already know? Um, and you know, how does that, you know, how, how does that correlate to what, uh, you're trying to do as a business? Like, what are you, what are you trying to change and what are you trying to impact as a result? Yeah. So what we're announcing is a SaaS based build service. So basically all you need to do is, uh, connect your GitHub repository. Uh, that GitHub repository should already have a habitat plan in it. Uh, and it's really easy to create a new habitat plan by just running one command. Uh, and if you have source code in that GitHub repository, like node or Ruby, uh, or even Java, you can basically specify a scaffolding. So basically within like four lines of shell, you can automate packaging up that and running that application. And so the build service will read from that GitHub repository. And anytime you do a commit and you change your code or you change your plan, the build service will pick that up and build you a new application artifact. And then that application artifact can then also then be automatically exported to something like Docker Hub. Now, further down the line, we're going to have other export uh, formats that we support inside of Builder itself, where you can export maybe to Azure Container Registry or Google Container Registry or Amazon Container Registry, or maybe you don't want to export it as a container, but maybe you want to put a tarball up on S3 or something like that. And that's really what we're launching is that uh, SaaS-based build service that will automatically rebuild your packages and then automatically spit them out in a deployable format for you. And so if we rewind to earlier in the podcast when we were kind of talking about that production cliff and that, uh, that tweet of that, that infamous whiteboard um, and all the things that are in there, um, can you kind of correlate for me what Habitat and especially this new service is doing to kind of help solve those problems? Like where do you feel like this is you know, further making that production cliff more simple? Yeah, I think most of it, uh, is on when you actually go to run the application. So there is definitely benefits because uh, you get choice in the middle. So we, we categorize things as build, deploy, and manage with Habitat. And that middle thing of there, that middle aspect of deploy, um, what you want to try and have there is as much choice as possible, right? Um, if you look at what's happened with development teams and going back to kind of the podcast and uh, my podcast, The Goat Farm, and what we've talked about on there for a while is this idea of developer teams getting more choice in the infrastructure that they run on. And it's one of those agile things of moving from project teams to product teams. So uh, developers get to choose how they build it, how they run it, uh, and then they also get to choose uh, the architecture that they're going to use as well. So you might have one team that wants to go down the route of Mesosphere and Marathon and tools like that. You have another team that wants to go down the route of Docker Swarm. You have a, yet another team that wants to go down the route of Kubernetes. And how do you build this system that allows them to have that choice uh, without necessarily tying them in very early on? Because if you put, uh, if you have a developer that puts everything in a Docker file, guess what? You're stuck with Docker's paradigm for the rest of the life cycle of that application, right? And if you wanna make a choice further down the line of like maybe we don't wanna use Docker anymore because we don't wanna eat that entire hog, maybe we wanna use, um, uh, I can never pronounce it, it's C-R-I-O. There's a cute way to say it, uh, but I can never remember how to say it. It's the container runtime interface that Google's uh, been working on. If you wanna switch to that, like how can you switch to that seamlessly? Or maybe you wanna choose that you wanna run it on bare metal all of a sudden, how do you make that happen? 
So that choice is very important in the middle. And then the other aspect is the management side of things. So there's a lot of uh, things that are included in that habitat deployable artifact that makes it makes it much easier to run the application. So there's a habitat supervisor in there that provides things like service discovery. Um, so you can find out who your peers are. You can pass in uh, information between those peers as well. So if you have 10 instances of an application and you want to make sure that all 10 of them are configured properly, you don't have configuration management running on each one of those instances. What you have is the supervisor that's talking to other supervisors to figure out what is the live running configuration of that application. You can have service groups talk to other service groups so those supervisors can talk to one another and say if there's a database tier and an application tier, they can exchange things like secrets and stuff like that so that the application can automatically configure itself. And really it's about decentralizing control as much as possible onto the individual instances instead of the traditional config management world or management world of having a centralized controller and that centralized controller dictates out to all the instances of how they should be configured. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, one of the comments you made on the cube was specifically in, in the Docker world that configuration management is is no longer needed. Which I was like, oh my god! I, I, like Michael saying, configuration management guy, right? Chef is saying that's no longer needed. So um, what I'm hearing is, you know, we're kind of you, you guys are trying to bake this in in, in many respects into Habitat. Yeah, we're baking a lot of that into the supervisor. And what's interesting is is you don't have, going back to that example that I gave earlier of the customer who said, I only need 10 lines of bash to automate my application. Because we baked in a lot of the intelligence about how to um, uh, bring up a multi-tiered application into the supervisor itself, you don't have to write a lot of that code in your configuration management. So like in the chef world, what you would do is you would query back to the chef server and use the chef server to kind of discover who your peers are. And then you would write out a config file and you would have to hope that all your peers had all checked in recently. Uh, and you write a lot of logic and uh, a lot of logic also around rolling releases and stuff like that in your cookbooks. And you have to do the same thing with Puppet and Ansible and other tools like that as well. Um, a lot of that goes away because the intelligence is actually already baked into the supervisor and the supervisor can do things like figure out who should be uh, the master and who should be the replicas of a database set, right? Um, there's a lot of that intelligence already baked into the supervisor. And, and then yeah, what, it, go ahead, Brent. We should be yeah, talking just to interesting. each other, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it was interesting that um, you know, GE Predix uh, specifically is using Habitat, and they talked about um, uh, you know, built, bringing up an elk stack, and it was just difficult in the in the chef automation world. And now with Habitat and the plan.sh or whatever it is, um, they're able to bring it up. The supervisor is aware of you know, what's actually up and in the order that it needs to come up and all the service discovery um, with that. Um, so if you can comment on that, and then the other part of that was, did I hear that there's like a bit of a message queue in there or you still need some sort of message queue like a rabbit or something to that effect? Yeah, so the the GE example, uh, so if you have uh, applications that need to come up and you need to go and have something like, uh, like I mentioned before, a master and then replicas, what you can do is you bring up the supervisors specifying what we call a topology. And then when you get enough supervisors up and running that are running a certain application, they'll perform what's called an election. And so they'll automatically figure out who should be the leader and who should be the follower. And then what's interesting is, is in the configuration files that you write, 
all you have to do is add one line that says, if leader, do this, or if me, leader, do this, if me, follower. Uh, and that's actually, it sounds funny when you actually say it out loud, but that's the actual code that you write uh, in the config file, the templated config file. Uh, that config file will automatically get generated by the supervisor, and then the, the instances can come up. Uh, now, you don't need a message queue because what's actually happening is there's a gossip ring. And so um, the application instances come up. You connect them to a peer that already exists. And then they can pass messages between themselves to figure out what is the live running configuration, who should be the leader, who should be the follower, and for so forth. And now all that's handled through the gossip ring. And that's the same as then if you have one gossip ring, you can connect other gossip rings to uh, uh, to each other and then pass information between the gossip rings as well. I like it's it. Totally we've decentralized. Got, we've got gossip girls. You know, we've got uh, cavemen in uh, in command lines. All sorts of awesome things here. This is really cool stuff. One of the thing. One of the things you're showing though here, uh, which by the way, if you guys want to teach everybody about the kind of the command structure for that, you should get the people who did the How Our Babby Formed video with the cavemen from Yahoo back in the day and have them like uh, kind of explain your command structure there. Uh, so you've shown um, kind of peer discovery, config changes, rolling deployment, uh, all these things. I mean, it sounds like a vast majority of that kind of production cliff is being handled by the supervisor. You mentioned scaffolding. So where does the scaffolding play? Is it is it simply just a frame? I mean, it sounds like what it is, right? Is it just a really good framework to help this work across multiple environments? Or does it also take on a couple of those roles that are traditionally, we've kind of been individually configuring? No, scaffolding's taken care of at the front, right? Okay. Uh, and scaffolding's all about how you build software. So what Habitat does is it basically allows in that plan.sh, the whole point of the plan.sh is the plan to build the software. And so if you look at how you build software, every piece of software has, uh, and every single language has a way that you build it. So in the GNU world of how you build a C, C++ application. So if you went and downloaded uh, Redis, for instance, or OpenSSL or glibc, there's a standard paradigm that's there, and it's basically dot slash configure, make, make, install. And if uh, if you've been a system administrator on Linux long enough, you probably had to download a tarball, untar it, check or check the checksum, untar it, and run through this dot slash configure, make, make, install. For Java, it would be possibly Maven, right? And you would walk through the Maven steps of actually building the software. And so what the plan and uh, builder does for you is basically encapsulates those steps and make those steps extremely repeatable. And so what the scaffolding does is because there's a common way to build a Node.js application, there's a common way to build a Ruby application, there's a common way to build a Java application, the scaffolding basically encapsulates uh, what the build lifecycle is for that particular language. And you don't have to worry about rewriting all of that build lifecycle in your plan.sh. You simply just say that I want to use this scaffolding, and it provides that template for the build lifecycle for you automatically. That's cool stuff. So the other thing you did mention a little earlier, you mentioned our favorite word, Kubernetes. Um, and uh, so, I, again, you have some stuff already out there um, circling around Kubernetes, uh, but we have some additional conversations that we can talk about now, some uh, some possibly new things. So. Uh, kind of tell us where you've been and where you're headed as far, especially around Kubernetes and, um, you know, using that environments and uh, what else you're focused on for that. Yeah. So maybe about a year ago, uh, I had the chance to go to the Kubernetes conference that was in Seattle uh, back in November of um, 2016. 
and kind of saw what was going on in that community and uh, was just shocked. It was uh, about a thousand people at the time. Um, then we ended up going to Berlin at that conference and it was just as big, uh, if not bigger. And then the next one is going to be huge, which is in December of 2017, which by the way, I'll be giving a talk on container build systems. So if you wanted to check that out. Um, but what we found is that Kubernetes was, uh, um, really kind of opening people's eyes about how you run modern applications. And we thought that we had a good integration uh, with Kubernetes. And we started poking around with it. I started poking around with it and trying to figure out what that integration looks like. Um, we worked with a couple design partners to try and figure out what that integration would look like. Uh, I did a talk at ChefConf about uh, using Habitat with Kubernetes. And then what we ended up doing was we ended up hiring, uh, working with an engineering uh, partner, and that engineering partner is built what's called a uh, an operator or custom operator. So basically, what you do is uh, you, Kubernetes is pretty cool because you can extend the API very easily. And so what we've done is basically extended the Kubernetes API to have what's called a service group. So a service group is our name for those gossip rings that I talked about earlier. And so basically, you can put YAML into Kubernetes that says, "I want a service group, uh, a new resource called a service group." And then you point to the image, and then you can put in some Habitat-specific configuration information. Uh, and you can push that up uh, into Kubernetes, and then it will stand up the uh, Habitat-based application. It'll understand that it's been built with Habitat and that it has the Habitat supervisor in it. And then it, can, it allows Kubernetes to interact directly with the Habitat supervisor and vice versa so that the application can come up in the right topology. You can pass in configuration from Kubernetes. You can pass in secrets from Kubernetes as well. Uh, and it gives you a really native look and feel to how you would want to interact with Kubernetes. But still, you can take advantage of the Habitat supervisor. So with the recent announcement of, uh, uh, I guess, Kubo and Pivotal, uh, Pivotal Cloud Foundry integration of Kubernetes, does that change at all the way that you interact with uh, Kubernetes as an orchestration platform, considering the underlying um, automation is through Bosch. Does that matter at all to you? No, that doesn't matter uh, at all to us. Uh, we see that more as um, you know, Bosch is responsible for running that Kubernetes platform and that uh, scheduling platform. Um, we see that we kind of play um, the way I like to describe it is is that you have tools that are responsible for orchestrating the workloads, and then once the workloads are up. Uh, the application needs to orchestrate itself and doing things like serve peer discovery, passing configuration, auto configuration and stuff like that. And that's where Habitat begins to take over is once the workload is scheduled uh, somewhere. So what I want to differentiate then, Michael, is this Habitat supervisor, because um, you talked about it maintaining the application and kind of you know keeping it up, if you will. That's similar to a scheduler and to an orchestrator. How do you differentiate? Do you need uh, a Kubernetes or a, or a DCOS? Uh, or can you just run applications without containers and without those those schedulers, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. So we had kind of talked about earlier about are containers the right choice for you and the right choice for your application? So the interesting thing that you can do with Habitat is you don't necessarily have to wed yourself to containers. Uh, if you want to run on a VM, you can run on a VM, you can run on bare metal, uh, and you can have the Habitat application run. The supervisor runs the exact same way. All you need is uh, 
Windows support is still kind of in beta. Um, but all you need is a Linux x86-64 based operating system with a kernel of 2.6 or higher, and you can run a Habitat-based application. It doesn't matter if it's Ubuntu, it doesn't matter if it's CentOS, it doesn't matter if it's Red Hat, uh, it doesn't matter if it's SUSE, it's all going to run and behave the same. And then the nice thing is, is you still get all of the benefits of the supervisor. So you get that service discovery, you get those gossip rings where you can pass configuration information, uh, you get uh, the ability to have a REST-based API that you can query the health of the application, and all of those things still work the same way, uh, whether if you're running on Kubernetes, whether if you're running directly on bare metal, whether if you're running on an instance in Amazon. And that's why we think this is really powerful, because you get choice of platform, but you get consistency in how the application's built, and you get consistency in how you manage the application. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I mean, I have questions about the ecosystem here, right? So you've chosen to do something from a SaaS perspective. Was there was there like a driving was was there something that was kind of fundamentally driving, um, you know, why you would do the build service for Habitat as a SaaS versus kind of everybody having their own? Is this a is this a sharing thing? Is this um, because of kind of multi cloud scenarios where everybody's everywhere and so they kind of need a centralized location for it? Or what's driving what's driving that? Yeah, the SaaS is more because we want to make it easy to get in people's hands. Okay. Uh, we want people to use it, uh, and we want to try and give them a seamless experience as much as possible. And when you have to go uh, install on-premise software, um, that's usually a barrier to entry. So we're trying to eliminate the barrier of entry to start having people automate their applications with Habitat. Further down the line, we'll probably look at having an on-premise offering, um, but, you know, all of this is kind of in, in the planning stages. Right now, what we want to try and do is to try and get Habitat in people's hands. We want people to start automating their applications with it. Uh, and then we'll kind of figure out how we build a product off of that going forward. It actually architecturally feels like it was very purposeful because people are going to have these environments. Like you said, um, you don't want to be locked into one thing. So you're going to probably have a splash of Azure and you're going to have a splash of Amazon and you're probably going to have some on-prem and uh, you're probably even going to have like two or three Kubernetes environments across different you know clouds or whatever you may have. And you just want to be able to pick one or two or three and deploy them. And if you pick a specific prem to have your, 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 you know, your, uh, your habitat in, then it becomes very difficult to hit the others, but you're obviously the centralized location for all of that. Uh, and then on top of that, it, I think it fundamentally helps with sharing as well. If I've built something um, and I, you know, like if, if I've created something unique and I want to share it with the rest of the community, um, I assume you're probably going to build some sort of community aspect in, into it as well, if you haven't already said that or done that. Yeah, I mean, we haven't built it into Builder itself, but we do have a pretty vibrant community. We have a, a Slack channel. So if you go to slack.habitat.sh, I'm not, sorry, a Slack team, if you go to slack.habitat.sh, um, you can go and sign up for it. All of our development is done in the open. So this is actually pretty interesting if you actually go into the general channel and then there's also sub channels depending upon what you're interested. So there's a Python channel, there's a Kubernetes channel, there's a Ruby channel and so forth. But if you go into that general channel, all of the lead engineers uh, and all of the engineers that work on Habitat for Chef and externally as well, all of that work is being done in the open. So you get to actually see how the sausage is made. Mm. That's fantastic. So is there is there also a like a completely different separate Slack or channel um, for you know your other pillars like you mentioned Habitat very specifically but are, is there, are there other is there development in the open for your other pillars as well you know the Chef and some of the other things there for the open source 
parts of Chef, uh, yes. We do have a commercial product, and, and that development is done uh, behind the scenes, and that's for our, our Chef Automate offering. Uh, for InSpec, uh, it's also done primarily open in the open because uh, InSpec is more of a, an engine, and then it would run, and then you would push those results back into another tool uh, that would collect that data. And for us, that's uh, Chef Automate. So basically, it's just pushing data back into Chef Automate once InSpec runs. But a lot of that InSpec development is done in the open as well. So I, I, you know, we mentioned before we move on because I do have a question. Um, like, a, I'm gonna, I'm gonna digress, right? I'm gonna go somewhere else and squirrel it. Um, we've mentioned, uh, you know, a Habitat, the software as a service. We mentioned some of the Kubernetes things. Are there, you know, with this most recent announcement, um, is there anything else that I, I have forgotten to ask because I'm Brian and I forget? Well, maybe you didn't forget to ask, but I forgot to mention. Uh -huh. So thank you for asking. Uh, you went to that GAE Preduct story. So basically what that has taught us is that there is definitely an opportunity in the Cloud Foundry world to make things better because Preduct is a platform that's built on Cloud Foundry. And uh, another thing that we're, we're happy to announce is that we have the ability to now export Habitat packages into Cloud Foundry. So it's just another deployment target that we have. Uh, you can take a Habitat built application and export it into Cloud Foundry, and then uh, you run it as a container in Cloud Foundry. And this is useful for those backing services. And when I say backing services, I mean things that are going to persist data like Redis, mm -hmm. uh, like Mongo, like Postgres, and so forth. And then you get to take advantage of the Habitat supervisor to bring that application up in a sane and safe manner, pass configuration changes, and all of those sorts of things as well. And it integrates in directly with Cloud Foundry. Uh, and this was interesting because this work was done by um, a company by the name of Stark and Wayne. So I definitely want to make sure I give a shout out to them uh, and give a shout out to Kinfolk. So Kinfolk is the one who did the Kubernetes work for us. They're a great uh, uh, organization out of uh, Berlin. But Stark and Wayne has been um, uh, in the Cloud Foundry community for a long time. Um, they also did a lot of work around Bosch. Uh, so I believe... Uh, some of the people who actually created Bosch work at Stark and Wayne. Um, so we saw it as great validation that they would want to, uh, they already had this great configuration tool and they saw that there was still tremendous value of what they could uh, build uh, by using Habitat and, and incorporating Habitat into Cloud Foundry. Yes, I've heard uh, Stark and Wayne's name around Cloud Foundry multiple times and uh, yet another cool thing. So thanks to them. Um, since we met, since we're mentioning kind of these targets, uh, again, awesome for the Cloud Foundry target. I know you mentioned um, Amazon as a target. Can we go ahead and clarify the current kind of this current release where we stand right now? What all targets are available as far as these exporters? Yeah. So um, Docker, uh, so Docker container, uh, an ACI container, which is um, kind of the alternative format if you don't want to go with a Docker image. Uh, a tarball, so the tarball is nice because basically you can lock in dependencies into a package and then you can take that and deploy it to a VM uh, or a bare metal system if you want to. Uh, Mesos, uh, Cloud Foundry, and then Kubernetes. Awesome. All the big guys. Yeah, that's enough. A, yeah. <laughs> Those are... That's a, that's a good party for the beginning. You know, we can invite other people. It'll end up like... Uh, at the end of the night, it'll end up like Project X where everybody shows up, right? So... Go ahead, Brent. Yeah, one of the questions I had, and this was reading through either the webpage or the documentation, uh, there was a mention of a of effectively a, a lightweight OS. And I didn't know if you guys were 
of building your own lightweight OS, or if this was just, I don't know, maybe I just read it wrong. So can you clarify what that lightweight OS is? Yeah, it's, bus- it's, it's BusyBox. <laughs> okay. So if you, if you look at um, like what you need inside of a container, so you need the application and the libraries, uh, the kernel aspects are handled uh, by the underlying host OS that's running the, uh, the container runtime. And so what you do when you do an export in Habitat is um, what, not what you do, what Habitat does. And so if I ran hab package export docker in the name of my package, it will actually go and calculate the dependency tree for my application. Uh, so it'll basically uh, know exactly what the application needs to run. It'll package that up or take that as its first layer. And then it'll take the Habitat supervisor and all of the dependencies the Habitat supervisor has. And then it puts BusyBox in there because sometimes you need to uh, do a Docker exec and get into a container for troubleshooting and stuff like that. Uh, and that's really just the small lightweight OS. Probably small lightweight user land would be more appropriate because you're not getting features of like the kernel and stuff like that. Okay, thank you. So uh, we, we, I think we've fully kind of exhausted the habitat and, and uh, that kind of space. Oh, I could what keep I, talking about that oh. for another half an hour, but we can, <laughs> we can move on. We've got unlimited well, time. Let's go. Let's do this. We do. I, I, I do have a question on specifically uh, how, how chef and, and the team that, that builds things internally, how the teams are um, uh, structured to uh, enforce the culture of DevOps, right? What are, what are you guys doing? I mean, we, we see a lot around, Geez, who was at Spotify and some of the other companies that like announce what they're doing, how their teams look? But do you guys do you guys uh, share that? And and if not, what does it look like? Um, I honestly, uh, I don't know if I can actually answer that because uh, I'm I'm pretty far removed from engineering, uh, so I don't actually see a lot of uh, that engineering process that goes on besides what's done in the open in the Habitat channel. Um, I'm on the road a lot and I work remote, so I actually don't get to see a lot of what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, we do have a very strong remote culture, so that's uh, something that's uh, very much encouraged. Um, so we know that we kind of do this typical thing of stand-ups. Uh, we do do um, weekly releases, at least for Habitat. So we're all about trying to get code out as quickly as possible. Um, and... Um, yeah, I think those are the main aspects that I can really talk to. Do you, so, I guess how, how frequently then, with with regards to CIA or you know the the continuous delivery and then the continuous deployment, how frequently are you guys actually releasing code into you know production and then also um, you know making changes internally before you pr- uh, move to production? We, um, I would say it's probably on a weekly basis for some projects and it's two week basis for other projects. So we do do nightly builds so that you can have the latest and greatest available to you. Um, but as far as actually cutting a real release that we're uh, feel confident that you could actually use it to run your production systems, we do that either on a one week basis between uh, depending on what project or a two week basis. And what's interesting about Chef is while we have these kind of open source pillars, uh, of Chef, Inspect, and Habitat. Inside of each one of those, there might be two or three, or in the case of Chef, many other open source projects that support uh, the main open source project. So a good example is uh, Test Kitchen, which is a tool that's used in the Chef world to test your cookbooks. 
Uh, and that's an open source project that's completely developed by the community. And so that has a little bit of a different release cadence uh, than the commercial product inside of uh, Chef Automate or even the Chef client itself. So it's kind of interesting in that having all of these different projects with different release cadences. Yeah, you just reminded me of how excited I got when I was talking to Chris Weber and he, he was uh, mentioning all these things like Test Kitchen and I got hungry because everything was around food. Um, so, uh, speaking of not food, one of the things I did want to talk to you about again, back to getting 30 more minutes of habitat in, um, with your, with your exporters and targets and things like that. Um, another recent announcement was this kind of open container initiative. So, uh, I'm not sure if you're, if you've even been able to keep up with it because it's only a couple of weeks old at the most. Um, but you know, essentially it's an announcement of the, that kind of uh, group that was formed a couple of years ago, actually standardizing and making a formal announcement around a kind of open container standard where across all the vendors were using a kind of shared standard, which we were, we we're having a little bit of infighting there for a little bit. Um, and so have you, have you been able to see that? And, you know, do you have any opinions on how that might impact, um, your ability to, to support additional platforms? Obviously, if we get something open and standard, hopefully it makes it a lot easier, right? Yeah, we uh, we support that through the ACI package export. So uh, we use the older name. We just haven't renamed things. Okay. Um, it's called Application Container Interface okay. when it came out very early on uh, and kind of when Rocket was announced and all of those things. What I find interesting about the OCI and the format is you get kind of that, that standardization across all of the tools, but then... If you go back to the nice thing about standards is there's, there's so many ways to do it. And so you see uh, container D and then you see uh, CRIO. Uh, God, I wish I remembered how to say that. I think that. you're doing great. We'll, just call him, <laughs> we'll call him Creo. What do you think? So, Creo is what it's is yeah, it? Creo is. I yeah, just, yeah. I just made that up. Look at me. Nailed it. Nailed it. Creo is what yeah. it's called. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's interesting because the infighting. Uh, that was going on in that world has just kind of went to um, we're just going to solve it with code, right? Uh, they're just going to write their own impl implementations of the OCI standard. Uh, and we'll see, I'll, I'll say we see who wins, but at the end of the day, I guess nobody's really going to win one way or the other. As long as you can take a container image and run it on any of those runtimes and, and get what you want, uh, in the end, it probably doesn't matter that much. At the so, end of the day, it's all turning knobs, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Michael, um, so you talked about, you know, you've got your open Slack channel and most of your development and and Habitat as well is out there. And so are there are there other projects that you guys are working on that are maybe out in the open that, that uh, you know, you're you're trying to stealth in some ways, but it's just there because of the nature of the way you, you guys uh, share with the open source community? Um, what's on the horizon? What's the next thing? That you guys are trying to trying to tackle at Chef. I think the the next thing that we're trying to look at is trying to build a more cohesive story around and integrations around all three of those open source projects. Uh, so there's some great things that you could do with Inspec and Habitat together, and we have some initial early um, uh, releases of that. So you could actually have inspect running alongside of your application inside of if you wanted to inside of one container or if you're using a vm then you could have your application run run by in i'm sorry by habitat and then you have an instance of inspect running as well 
And what InSpec can do is automatically download compliance profiles and constantly be running and checking that application to make sure that it's configured the way that you expect. Constantly checking to make sure that you're not using something like an old OpenSSL library or uh, an old uh, SSL cipher um, and those sorts of things. So like if a vulnerability comes out, InSpec can let you know right away that you have this vulnerability on the set of systems and you might need to go back to the build phase and rebuild things. And I think that kind of cohesive uh, cooperation between the open source projects is something definitely that we're looking at next. Cool. Sounds like uh, some of our friends in the the, uh, the credit industry could have used some inspec in their lives. I don't know how they were. I don't know how they were exploited just yet, but everybody could use a little bit more of that. So you know what we've done? We've we've uh, we've we've kind of uh, flapped our lips for a little bit. You know, right short of an hour, uh, and that's usually when we stop. So this is my favorite part. We get to ask that open-ended question that makes it look like we've uh, been he- heavily researchful. Um, you know, we talked about again. We talked about habitat. We talked about, um, you know, we talked about the Kubernetes stuff. Um, you know, we got to talk about a couple of the other announcements. Obviously, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of what you've done there with the Cloud Foundry and, you know, thanks to Stark and Wang and all those things. Are, are there any other announcements or any other things that, you know, Brent and I forgot to ferret out and kind of bring to the, bring to the surface so everybody can learn about it? Yeah, the other thing, um, so what's next is uh, around that Cloud Foundry integration is uh, we're looking at adding in uh, Open Service Broker API in front of that so that you'll be able to um, directly integrate in via OSB, uh, which I think that'll provide uh, a lot of value to the Cloud Foundry community. A lot of fun announcements. I mean, it's really cool stuff. I feel like I need to go uh, go, go learn Habitat this weekend. That's what always happens. We talk to somebody, I'm like, ah, I need to go play with that more. But of course, like you, I get to go run around and uh, not not be deep down in it all the time. But uh, there's always time to play. So, well, you can. Hey, Brian, you can do the interactive demo, and you have to install nothing. I did it last night. That's why it they made well. they made it easy. That's why they made it SaaS was so that people wouldn't have to work hard to get it. So, and that's what we don't do is work hard to get what we want. Um, awesome. So on Twitter, I have you as at mfdii. That's correct. Should I should I ask you what that means, or is that going to make it's, it's my initials? Oh. You got that's a, oh so the second, yes. I'm the second yes. yes. As I said earlier, yes. uh, I like called Michael because my dad was always called Mike. Yeah, um, that part I wasn't recording, but now it's on record. And uh, <laughs> hello to Mike in case you're listening too. Um, and so obviously we got you Twitter, GitHub, all those kind of things. I love that you live out in the open. Um, you know, and people who do, don't already subscribe to your podcast, it looks like more cool stuff is coming. Um, our other favorite question, and it's funny, a listener this week was like, could you please write down all the books and put them in kind of like one record? We like to ask people what they're reading. Uh, and as, as I see you in your, and people can't see this, but uh, the background from Michael is this major, amazing law library of books. Like you can just, he looks like he's in the Library of Congress, but it's actually his house. Um, what are you reading to keep yourself educated and fresh? Uh, so I'm actually reading something that's not technology focused at all. Uh, I'm reading a book called Those Feet, uh, The Central History of English Soccer. Uh, and so as a, another hobby uh, of mine is, is paying attention to soccer or football, if you will. Um, and um, there's a lot of good books around uh, kind of understanding how that, uh, uh, that sport has grown over the years and its history and roots, uh, which were, of course, in England. Uh, so I find it very, very interesting, and I find it a way, uh, since I do travel a lot, um, 
anywhere out of America, it's very easy to immediately connect with someone by talking uh, soccer with them. But here you're going to have to play that other, the, the, the oblong ball conversation, right? Yeah, well, it, it's starting to get better here. And uh, of course, the viewers can't or the listeners can't see, but I do have a Columbus crew shirt on uh, yeah. right now. Uh, but it, it's definitely gotten better. It's definitely not where uh, soccer was 20 years ago or even 10 years ago or even five years ago. Uh, the passion and the uh, um, the following of it has gotten a lot better. And I think that's just because they've U.S. soccer has done a good job of, of building out that program. Yeah, uh, they also can't see it. And it's also not true, but I'm wearing my... Uh my Frisco soccer team shirt because they're right down the street, but it's not true, but I love my Frisco soccer team. It's great. Um, we also host, uh, the, the, like, what is it? The, I think it's the one double a or no, it's the, uh, the next division down from major college football, the national championships in that soccer stadium there, because it's just, just big enough to hold the, uh, the division two, uh, football championships, but I digress. And, um, what we really need to do is wrap this up. So, Again, we have these we have these guests, we have these ideas because of our listeners. So continue to be social with us. We love it. Uh, you know, Michael also loves all your tweets. So you know, hit him up and uh, let him know what you think of Habitat when you come and try it out. And uh, on behalf of the Hot Out, I am Brian Carpenter, my co-host, and I'm I'm Brent Piatti. Yep, that's Brent Piatti. And Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.